Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Well, it's hard to believe that there are only two weeks left in this teaching series. We're coming to the end of our walk through the New Testament letter of Hebrews, and we finally arrived at chapter 13. So Hebrews so far has been mostly preoccupied with the greatness of Jesus and what is really happening spiritually. And in chapter 13, you're going to notice today the tone really shifts uh, to become extremely practical. It's full of practical commands. And uh, I just want to uh, remind you of how we ended last week again. I know I talked about it a little bit in our call to worship this morning, but why don't you actually just get Hebrews 13 out in front of you this morning. We're going to be on page 1009 in a Bible under the chairs in front of you. This is how uh, chapter 12 ended. It said, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So for the next two weeks in chapter 13, we're going to be talking about the markers of a life lived with reverence and awe. By my count, 15 things. The author gives us 15 little uh, commands, external ways that an internal awe of God will show itself. And I just want you to see the first one. Chapter 13, verse uh, 1 says this. Let brotherly love continue. I just want to begin with that really quickly because it's my understanding, based on the way the chapter is written, that this is actually the heading for everything that will follow later. As we read this morning, you're going to notice the pattern is, do this, here's why, do this, here's why, do this, here's why. This one breaks the pattern, and for that reason, I think this actually is kind of the umbrella theme of everything we're going to study, brotherly love. The other thing, real quick, you'll see the link to the rest of Hebrews there in the word continue. Let brotherly love continue, that's synonymous with endurance or perseverance. Actually, it's the same Greek word used elsewhere to, to uh, say endure. So the theme of the whole letter has been hold fast to Christ, right? Persevere in trusting Christ. Uh, let us run with endurance the race set before us and so on. Now we read, let brotherly love continue as well. So there's a link in the author's mind. There should be a link in our minds between holding fast to Jesus and then holding fast to each other as well. Wherever someone begins losing their grip on the Lord, inevitably you will find they start losing their grip on each other. And wherever people start losing their grip on each other, they lose their grip on Jesus and round and around it goes. My main observation though, if you're just reading through the letter, or if you've been following along the last couple of weeks, the main thing that strikes me is that this appears to come out of nowhere, okay? I'm going to go out on a limb, if you were here last week, and say that last week's study was one of the most esoteric, otherworldly, dare I say, even bizarre teachings that I've participated in a while at Faith Community Church. Can I get an amen? Yes. We were talking about the spiritual Mount Zion and worlds you cannot see and angels and festal gathering and the spirits of the righteous made perfect and it ended with our God as a consuming fire. And Hebrews moves from the sublime to the humbug every day so quickly that you would be excused for having just a little whiplash as you read the book of Hebrews. But scripture just does not have 
this hard line between what we cannot see and what we can see. That's our issue. And what we really believe about what's happening spiritually will absolutely find its way out in the way we live and especially in the way we treat one another. Okay, better yet, Hebrews would say, if you really understood what was going on, we would understand there's no such thing as mundane and ordinary things. But we live in a world charged with the grandeur and the glory of God. And you are not sitting next to ordinary people this morning. You're sitting next to immortal souls. As C.S. Lewis would put it, you're, you're sitting next to a, people who are either moving toward an indescribable degree of glory or an eternal horror, to, which we can hardly imagine. So what we're reading about in these last two weeks of this series, character, characterize externally what a life of awe looks like internally. And uh, 15 things in two weeks, no problem. Today, we're going to talk about sex and money in the same sermon. This is going to be a while. Woo, aren't you glad you came to church today? Woo, thank you. Let's, uh, let's jump into our scripture reading. So our scripture reading is verses 1 through 6 in chapter 13. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let, the mar let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, the first marker of a life lived in reverence and awe to God is brotherly love. And because of the context in which we live, when we hear brotherly love, our default setting is to hear, I want you to have warm feelings of affection toward one another. That's typically what we mean when we talk about love. And it's not untrue, okay? I hope you do have warm feelings toward each other. But it's not the truth. And the, here the author, is, he's going to talk about four really practical ways we love one another. Uh, and they're incredibly concrete. Genuine hospitality, verse 2. Loyalty, verse 3. I'll explain that in a minute. Sexual integrity, verse 4, and generosity, verse 5. And immediately you will notice that none of these naturally spring from warm feelings. Okay? In fact, all of them work against our natural inclinations on some level. The kind of love that comes from God is a sacrificial uh, self-dying love and we see it in all four of the things that follow and of course this is what we see in the person of Jesus first Timothy or first John 316 this is how we know what love is that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers so yes God would love for us to have warm feelings of affection for each other but those feelings generally follow actually moving out in, in love toward each other sacrificially. 
Let's just look at the first one then. Uh, here's another way that awe and reverence for God make themselves known. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, throughout the ancient world, hospitality was a highly valued virtue. Actually, uh, Zeus was known as the god of strangers. It was said he would come down in disguise sometimes and leave a blessing for people who took him in. But in the Bible, hospitality is a matter of moral significance. In Scripture, hospitality is more than the ability to lay a nice place setting or provide a comfortable bed, although some of you are awesome at that as well. Hospitality in Scripture is a moral disposition of your heart. It's the moral disposition of your heart that sacrificially makes room for other people in your life. Uh, Just as an example, in the New Testament, when we're given a list of of character requirements for leaders in the church, a demonstrated uh, history of hospitality is actually required for church office. Uh, In 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're given a list of requirements for widows who would be financially supported by the church. A history of hospitality was required for any widows to be financially supported by the church. So at this time in history, Christians traveling from city to city, either for ministry or even for business, needed safe places to stay because inns were not common, they were expensive where you could find them, and they were unsafe and uh, disreputable establishments. In the ancient world, inn and brothel were almost synonymous with each other. So a refusal to take in a stranger might not just put them at, at risk, but it might put them in a compromising situation. And so... We live in a different context now. We've got a Holiday Inn right down the street here and things like that. A different context, but the moral imperative remains in place for Christians today. Uh, Genuine love requires uh, genuine hospitality. And the real challenge in this verse is to strangers. Okay, if it had stopped at just show hospitality... I would have left the verse feeling pretty good about myself. That's not what it says. The church is to be marked by hospitality, especially to strangers. Now, we live in the Midwest. We live in God's country. You know, this is, you know, the center of, that's a joke, everybody. Just, are you okay? Are you okay? We live in the Midwest. And we, in particular, we have something here called Minnesota Nice. You've heard of that? Some of you are Minnesota Nice. It's a great thing. And I, I, as a, here, here's the way an outsider described Minnesota Nice to me once. Actually, I've had two people say this to me. People who moved here from other regions of the country, they would say, in the Midwest, everybody is nice to you, which is a lot better than like New York or something. But they have the five-finger rule. People in the Midwest have room in their lives for five important relationships, and once those five slots are used up, it's really hard to get in if you're an outsider, okay? So, they might bring you a casserole, but they're not really gonna let you into their lives. And I think that's right. And for Christians, I think scripture teaches that this thing here is actually a moral and spiritual issue for us. I'm afraid that in the Midwest, we think this is a virtue. (laughs) 
We're nice to everybody, and unlike those needy people from other cultures, we just need five friends. You know what I mean? So I'm afraid we think this is a virtue, and Scripture is saying to the Midwesterner, this closedness to allow outsiders into your life is actually an issue of sin. It's actually mentioned in the same breath with sexual immorality and greed. Now, I don't think I need to tell you why this is such a challenge. Because we love comfort, don't you? We love comfort and people do not move to the suburbs to have strangers all up in their business, right? We move here for the three S's. We want space, say it with space, a sense of security, and we don't want people touching our stuff, you know. And the people you already like are a threat to all those things. Okay, you know, forget, forget strangers. Your grandkids are a threat to all three of those things. So we live in a different context, but the issue is there. Okay, and I would say also the potential impact remains. So uh, a number of historians and sociologists, some of them openly hostile to the church, have studied this question a lot. How did Christianity grow from a small persecuted sect to become the dominant religion of the Roman Empire in just a few hundred years? And one thing that everybody agrees on is because Christians built uniquely strong and cohesive communities that somehow also remained open to the outsider. They built uniquely strong, cohesive communities, and yet somehow they managed to remain open at the same time. In other words, Rome was conquered by genuine hospitality. Okay, and so how much more in this century where isolation and loneliness are at like epidemic levels, I mean, people are writing articles about this stuff, how much more of an impact will this important attribute of the Christian life have. Eden, Eden Schaefer used to have a, a sign hanging in her kitchen. It said, food is the love of God made edible. It's a great attitude. So it, I'm just, if the church in the United States is not going to die a slow and painful death as everyone is expecting it to, your kitchen table will actually have an enormous part to play in that. I, I do want to say I am so proud of you, of my association with you. There are so many ways that you welcome the stranger already. We, we foster and adopt kids here. We host international students. You're involved in halfway houses. We own a home for refugees and families in crisis as a church. We host you know, things like a community garden and a farmer's market. We're involved in pro-life ministry together. We support ministries that are helping resettle displaced people together. And the list just, I made a huge long list. There's not a lot of time for all of it. All of these are ways we welcome the stranger. I, I just want to challenge you as families not to confuse Minnesota nice with what, what we're reading about here. A genuine hospitality. And, and let me just encourage you and exhort you. You know, there's a reason we have structured missional communities at Faith Community Church the way that we have, where most of them have, you know, a home base within a neighborhood or a school district or something like that. I cannot tell you what a gift it is to be able to say to anyone who walks through the doors here, 
that almost anywhere you live on the map, we have a, a community ready to receive you. I've talked with pastors who would just die for that opportunity. And we get to do that here. A missional community, you know, what is it other than a place where we're building an attractive, welcoming space where strangers become family? One more thing about this verse. When it says in verse 2, in so doing, some have entertained angels unawares. What it's talking about are there are numerous examples in the Old Testament of people who welcomed strangers. I'm thinking of Abraham, Lot, Samson's parents, Gideon, and so on. People who welcomed strangers into their home only to learn later that these were actually angels, uh, angelic messengers sent by God. That's, that's what it's talking about. And Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 is the primo example. He sees these three, it says, men approaching him. Uh, he jumps up, he welcomes them, invites them to come to his tent and rest and relax, and it's only later that he finds out that these are angels. And they left Abraham a tremendous blessing. If you remember the story, they, they promised him the very thing he and his wife had been waiting for forever. And that's the point here in verse 2. That welcoming outsiders is costly. There's a sacrifice involved. But sometimes they will leave a tremendous blessing behind them. Okay, so I, I know, you know, fostering kids, for example, is a tremendous risk. It can be emotionally costly. But some of them, will be angels. Some of them will leave behind far more than they take from you. Uh, I, you know, this summer we had four college interns here at Faith Community Church and some of you hosted them for two months, strangers in your house, eating your food, touching your stuff, your space, your security, your stuff, boom, gone. But I bet if we asked those people, they would say, Boy, we got a lot more than we, than we gave. Uh, last week, you know, missional community leaders, every one of us, every missional community leader faces the temptation to close the doors of your community. I know exactly what it's like. New people mess with the chemistry, they bring new issues, and it may mean sending out people you love to plant new groups. There's a real cost to that. But they... They, they may be angels. They may leave a blessing too. This week, Darcy was at a baby shower for someone who was in a missional community with us like five years ago. She's since been part of planting two new missional communities and Darcy, she showed me a picture, just this huge group of women, all there, finding the kind of family that we're all longing for because people just keep saying yes and keep inviting. Second, the second manifestation of awe and reverence being worked out in love is, uh, I'm calling it loyalty. I know that sounds a little cultish, but I just couldn't find a better word. Okay, it's just loyalty. Verse three says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So the, the, the church or churches that received this letter had members who'd been actually in prison because of their faithfulness to Jesus. And there are at least two things here. First of all, there's a practical care concern. Roman prisons, 
provided enough to keep you alive and not much else. And so if people were going to have good food and warm clothing in prison, it had to come in from the outside. So there's just a practical care concern. But the second thing is that if you visited them, if you're the one bringing the food and clothing, then everyone's going to know you're a Christian too. And there's a real risk there. There is a lot of shame associated with being a Christian in some places in the Roman Empire. A lot of misconceptions about Christianity. So, yes, the movement grew exponentially, but it was also just dogged by these weird rumors. People accused Christians of being atheists because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods. They were accused of being unpatriotic because they wouldn't worship the emperor. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus in Greco-Roman minds conjured up this image of Christians worshiping kind of a ghoulish, you know, zombie-like Messiah from Hades. You know, it was really weird. And Christians were even accused of being cannibals because it was said they ate the body of Jesus and drank his blood in their gathering. So, I mean, if you, yeah, I mean, we've, there are a lot of misconceptions around Christianity today too, but no one's ever called me a cannibal or anything like that. So there's a lot of misunderstanding and shame attached to Christianity. And sometimes it'd just be easier to keep your distance. You know what I mean? Better for business, better for your social life and so on. And Paul talks about this actually a lot. Paul talks about, you know, the hardest thing about prison for him was having friends desert him. Church leaders who didn't want to be associated with him anymore. And so this is the second way that we manifest awe and reverence for God. We stick with each other. Okay? We're not ashamed of each other. I'll just, this one silly example, you know, another thing about the way we've structured missional communities, establishing them in neighborhoods and school districts and you can never close them, is that because of that, inevitably, every group's got a weirdo. Do you know what I mean? You do, and you're not saying it. <laughs> One or two faces probably came into your mind right now. Every, every group's got that weird uncle figure. You know what I mean? So we got this tension. We're, we're, we're building communities where really you really want your friends and neighbors to meet this community. And there's always that weird personality. You know what I mean? We're like, oh, I hope he doesn't talk. You know what I mean? I'm going to bring a friend and I'm going to have to like just warn them about Uncle Bob or whatever. Well, the, don't be ashamed of each other, okay? This is your brother. This is your sister, okay? It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean they aren't going to be wrong. It, it doesn't mean you're not going to have to pull them aside from time to time and say, I'm really glad I did not have a friend today because that, what you just did there, what was going on? Help me understand. Now, just if you are the weird guy, by the way, okay? <laughs> this is not permission for you to just keep at it, okay? We need you to be one of the community and help us with what we're trying to do. Middle schoolers and high schoolers, if I could just speak to you for a minute. Middle schoolers and high schoolers, I, I would imagine that being a Christian on your campus is getting harder. There's a lot of misconceptions about what the church believes and what we teach. I would just encourage you, don't be ashamed of each other. Don't be ashamed of each other. Stick with each other. I had the, you know, one of my good friends in high school, he was kind of the Christian guy at my school. There weren't many. 
and he was kind of a blockhead. He was, he was kind of a self-righteous, proud, you know, he just had a way of coming off that wasn't very positive. Picture a Viking fan in the middle of central Wisconsin. That's how stubborn this person was. <laughs> and he's grown into this incredibly godly man, leading a church. So, kids, stick with each other. Don't be ashamed of each other. Third way that we reverence, or that reverence and offer God gets worked out in love is sexual integrity. Uh, so this is the next verse. When you believe in the gospel, when you understand who Christ is, you have a high view of marriage and of our genders and of our bodies and the goodness of God's design for sex. In this context, the first century, it was common and completely acceptable for men to have wives to whom they were legally married and that, that's who you had your children with but then you'd have any number of mistresses on the side that you just had fun with. Wives were sexual property, and it was acceptable that you treat them that way. And scripture just cuts across the grain of that. So there's never been, ever, there's never been a culture or a generation whose default setting regarding marriage, sex, and gender has been in line with God's word. Okay, every generation, every culture's got its issues and scripture's going to cut across all of us in one way or another. There is this, I just want to make you aware, there's this really strange new teaching out there though uh, that is saying that this hang-up Christians have with sexual integrity is brand new. Uh, for Jesus and the apostles and the church fathers, this wasn't a big deal, but modern evangelicals are trying to control everybody and so now we're beating it to death. And I just do not know how anyone can say that with a straight face. Uh, th this is everywhere in the New Testament. I think virtually every book of the New Testament except Philemon addresses this issue. Obedience to Jesus with our bodies is not a marginal teaching in Scripture. It's always been a central marker of genuine faith. People who believe the gospel honor marriage together. Uh, we believe in the inherent goodness of our bodies and we honor the place of sex within marriage. Even when we fall short of this ideal, it's not for us, it's not a matter of celebration, but a matter of repentance and coming alongside one another to help one another grow and heal. Sexual integrity is one of the ways we love our spouses. Okay? We don't treat each other like sexual property. We don't treat our bodies as though they're our own. It's one of the ways we love our kids. Okay, your, your sexual integrity creates for your, your children an environment of safety and security. Sex is one of those things designed by God to keep driving spouses back to each other because communication and sex and, and uh, you know, getting along, and so they're so related, it just keeps driving parents back toward each other. And we don't often think about it this way, but sexual integrity is actually one of the ways we love everybody around us. Just the fact that you're faithful in your marriage makes your workplace a better place. When you go on business trips, your boss is not worried about what you're doing with your coworker. Uh, it just makes everything in society work better when we honor the boundaries that God has given us. For 60 years now, the mantra has been Who's it really hurting 
if two or more consenting adults are having sex? What is the problem with that if, if nobody's being hurt? Who's going to get hurt if we change the meaning of marriage from a voluntary, monogamous, lifelong, comprehensive, public, heterosexual union that exists to provide a stable context for raising children and serves the common good? Okay, if we change that and replace it with a definition of marriage where gender doesn't matter, its purpose is personal psychological well-being, it carries no public and no procreative purpose, and people are free to decouple as they move through different seasons of life, who's, who's that going to hurt? Well, I would just say after 60 years, I think the jury's kind of in on that. As it turns out, a lot of people get hurt by that, especially kids. Our modern vision of marriage has weakened the whole fabric of our culture. And we're not doing well. Everyone is hurting. I, almost, I don't know about every month, but regularly now. You'll, you'll read op-ed pieces from women who want total sexual freedom, but they're lamenting the complete lack of men fit to be a life partner anymore. So they want this total freedom, but they're discovering there's no dude out there we're spending my life with anymore. And then you have men who, you know, sex and leading a family used to go hand in hand with each other. Now we're, you know, men are just drift. They, they can have the one without the other, and they're just, why would I go to college? Why do I need a steady job? And so everyone is hurting. So in the church, we're going to honor marriage, okay, and not be ashamed of what Jesus teaches about it. We can also see there in verse 4 that God is not going to be mocked in these things. Okay. It says God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So he's war in this context, he's warning Christian men, even if it's acceptable to treat your wives this way, you will not because God will judge you for that. And it's the same for us. We're to be noticeably different in this regard. God will not be mocked. He's not withholding any good thing from us. Psalm 84, God will not withhold any good thing from his people. And we can trust God with our bodies and our desires. And when we fail, we can trust God with that too. So we want to be a place where honor is, where is given to marriage and there is a lot of room here to take care of each other in our failure because we've all failed in this regard. Finally, he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, and then he quotes Joshua 1.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Both of these last two things, sex and money, they just get right at the heart of who we are as people, don't they? They get right at the heart of who we are. Both of them, sex and money, both make these outlandish promises to us about they're going to make everything better. Both of them are also things we would like to keep off the discipleship table. Like we would love to kind of keep them in the dark. And yet scripture affirms over and over that these two things, sex and money, get right at the heart of things and they're part of our public worship and discipleship. In conservative circles, we tend to treat sexual sin as a greater danger to us, but, but Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will follow along. 
Your heart is going to go there as well. So this is why Hebrews says you have to keep your life free from the love of money. And the, the New Testament is just loaded with teaching on this subject. One of the things that makes greed, uh, I'm going to say, no, I'm not. One of the things that makes greed, no, nah, I'm not going to, it wasn't true. It wasn't true. It wasn't true. I'll ask Porter about it later. <laughs> One of the things that makes greed hard is you can never see it. Okay? Sexual sin is one of those things where you, you know what you're doing. Okay? You can lie to yourself. You can justify what you're I'm, I'm speaking as a pro here. Okay? You can justify what you're doing. You can kind of shut down the conscience, but you know what you're doing. And usually it takes planning even. Okay? Greed, you just never, th I mean, I've been in full-time ministry for like 20 years now. I have never had someone pull me aside and say, brother, I'm really struggling with greed right now. I just don't know. What to That's never happened. You're a bunch of greedy people. <laughs> I've had that conversation about sex all the time. But greed just kind of sneaks up on you, and there are no social taboos around greed. We actually really celebrate. Yay, good for you. And in general, we're just blind to it. So th there are two solutions I'd like to offer today. The first one is to get it into the light. What I'm suggesting is that every Christian should probably have one or two people outside of your household who kind of know your financial ish, your deal. What you're giving, you know, where you're giving it, why you're giving it, uh, you know, how you're mortgaged, what your debt looks like. I mean, and you don't have to share numbers, okay? Is there, how's everybody doing? You're comfortable now? You're just feeling real good about this? When I, you know, when I was a brand new pastor at Faith Community Church, one of my first conversations with Larry Zyman was about my money. And he just asked me straight up, what, what, are you, what are you guys giving? Where do you give it? Why do you give it? So I explained how we handle our tithe at our house. And he quoted to me, you know, what I just read? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We want your heart here. So, I had to go home and Darcy and I changed some of our giving in light of that conversation. Um, uh, um, my wife and I are in the middle of buying a house right now and we have a couple of elders that we've talked with where I've said, okay, this is what we're doing. This is what it's costing. Here's how we're financing the project. Is there anything here that seems inappropriate for a minister of the gospel? Like, is there anything going on here in what we're doing that if it became public, you would be embarrassed? And I just think it, that would be appropriate for every Christian. You do not need to go home and post your financials on Facebook today, okay? But there ought to be one or two people who have, and, and when I talked with those elders, by the way, I told, I said, if you felt this was wrong, would you say something to me? And they both said that they would. Um... The second thing, so, so get it into the light. The second thing is really simple, and that is to give. Um, there, there is no cure for greed like generosity. There just isn't. So this is how we teach this in the membership class. Let's all pretend we're in the membership class right now. This is the way that we teach this. It's our understanding at Faith Community Church that the new, the new covenant, the New Testament, 
does not lay on Christians any law regarding tithing. That's our understanding. Uh, there, there are churches that teach that differently and there are good reasons for that, but that's, how we, that's our understanding of things. That there's no law for you. The law is to be generous and we could take you to chapter and verse on that. But then I always go on to say, this is the St. Croix Valley. If you live here, you are automatically in the world's richest 3% of people. And for 5,000 years, the tithe has been held out to God's people as the benchmark for generosity. And so I say to members or potential members, we ask you to shoot for a tithe to the church off the top, the first fruits, to keep your heart free from the love of money and, yes, to fund the work that God is doing here and around the world. Now, uh, does it apply the same way to everybody? I, I've done a membership interview with a girl who just graduated college. She had like $40,000 of debt for a degree that is meaningless. You know, it's not, not worth $40,000. And, and she was working three jobs to try to take care of that. And me and the other elder said, we would prefer that you not give, that you have a full day off, and that you be a sane person. Uh, to those who are widows or single moms, you know, there's this, you know, the, the classic story of Jesus and the disciples watching the, the, the people come in and give their gifts and a, a widow puts in everything that she has. You know the story? And Jesus praises her. Okay, I don't want to take that away from you. But there's also teaching in the New Testament about how the church is supposed to financially support the widow. So, uh, we want to use some wisdom in these things, but I would just hold that out to you to say, you want to be free from the love of money, which can destroy your life. I think it's not that hard. 5,000 years of history tell us a tithe will get you a long way there. With all of these things, hospitality, loyalty, sex, money, all of them make crazy promises to you, and all of them are hard because they cost something significant. Hospitality costs us comfort. Loyalty to Jesus may damage our reputations. Honoring the marriage bed will mean saying no to other promises of love and affection. Giving generously will cost us something. But God's promise in the midst of every one of those things is, I love you. I will take care of you. Faith is a decision to respond to what God has said. If you will do what I ask, God is saying, I will take care of you. Look at what I've done for you already. If, if I'm willing to do this, to give my only son for you, don't you think I'll take care of your home if you open it up? Don't you think I'll take care of your pocketbook? Don't you think I'll provide companionship for you? All of these are a response of reverence and awe to a God who is saying to his people, I just, I would love for you to lay it all on the line for me and watch me take care of you. So I want to close with prayer. I'll invite the worship team to come up. I'm just going to give you two minutes right now where you're sitting. Is there anything as you've been listening that you know the Lord is speaking to you about? Hospitality, are, are you too close-fisted with your life? Are you ashamed of God's people? Is there any way that you know you're not honoring or valuing marriage in its place? 
Are you too tight-fisted with your, do you love your money? Why don't you just take two minutes right now and speak to the Lord about those things. Ask for his grace to respond and then we'll sing. Father in heaven thank you for your son Jesus and the promises of your word and most of all today for your love for us would you increase our faith make us a church whose reverence and awe for you shows itself more and more in these four things teach us protect this congregation from accusing and condemning thoughts today and make us free to serve you. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Let's stand and sing.